0: Dear Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Thank you so much for delivering your goodness to us in worship today. For showing us our need of Jesus and giving us Jesus in word and in sacrament. Thank you for your great grace through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would guide us into your word. Help us to learn something that may be fruitful so that we might love you and follow you. With faithful hearts, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey everyone, so I'm so grateful, so thankful that you all have given me, I'll just say it, the best welcome I've ever received in a church in my life. Um, We drove up to our home, which by the way I had not seen until we moved into it. That's how much faith I have in my wife. I don't know about some of you husbands. But basically, for me and my wife Abby, which I I hope you meet her, um, one of the joys is you get to that time in your marriage where you start to realize who's good at what. And uh, I know if I went out by myself to pick a home and buy it, uh, that I would like it, but Abby wouldn't, right? But if Abby went out to pick a home and buy it, she'd love it and I'd love it and it'd be the perfect home. So it's like, you know, if uh, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, it's that kind of idea. So we pull up into our home for the first time and there are balloons on our mailbox from the advent. And then we go inside our, our house and there's, okay... There's this wonderful welcome wagon packet of stuff on our countertop from the vestry. And this is kind of the prize. It's this box this big, filled with 3,000 napkins. (laughs) 3,000 napkins. So, everyone can come over to our home and we're never going to be out of napkins for the next five years. This is an awesome, wonderful... But that's just a sign of... I mean, I joke about that, but it's a sign of the abundance and the grace that's been given to me and my family. We just feel... So blessed. We've had a hard three years of ministry in South Florida. It's taken its toll. Uh, When I look back on pictures of myself before I came and then after I left, it was like I went through the presidency. You know? (laughs) They have all those pictures of the before and after of Bush and Obama and all those folks. It's like, I got a few more wrinkles. My hair's kind of dulled. I'm just feeling a little bit ragged. And that's how it was kind of a, God took us there for a reason. It was a slug fest. But we are grateful that God in his providence, called us out, and we're here now, and thank you. Thank you all for blessing us so much with all your love and grace, and all your time that you continue to pour out on me and my family. Uh, I say this not to be all like about me, but to let you know that what I'm going to talk about today and the next two weeks, which is a short little series, um, is part of a book that I wrote that's being published not by myself. It's actually published by, a, I can't believe it, like a legitimate publisher. Um, I don't know how and why it happened and God was gracious enough to do it. And its, prince, it's first tier is for people who are in my position, who uh, um, pastor people in local churches, primarily through planning and leading worship services. But its second tier and totally graspable are, are for people who are worshipers. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about what... The mechanics, the spiritual mechanics of what a worship service is and does. And so this week I'm going to talk about worship as encounter. And I hope it's going to be a little bit provocative and evocative for us. Hopefully it'll, it'll be a catalyst. This is my wife, Abby. Everyone say hi, Abby. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then next week, I can't remember the topic. Oh, next week is, we're going to talk about worship as war. So I hope you come back because we don't typically think of, and it's a, it's more than a metaphor. I'll just say that. Uh, and then the, the final week, I don't remember, but it's also going to be hopefully pretty, pretty good. Um, but these are things that have been in my mind and heart for the last year and a half as I've written this book and thought about these aspects of, of worship. So I want to begin with a question, and uh, I want to let it hang there. But before I do, I want to say, if anybody has any questions, feel free to raise your hand. I'd love for this to be interactive and dialogical. Uh, in nature, but I'll try, I'll try to leave time for questions. This Sunday is, is, especially Zach's, um, observing things behind the scenes. So I'm trying to get to, uh, the, the robing and vesting room before the service starts so I can kind of watch what's going on and just get my mind as the canon for liturgy and worship around all the things. And this is a very complex worship environment. And so, uh, pardon me if I try to jet right at 10.50 or 10.55. Uh, But I want to begin with a question and let it hang there for a second. Have we lost our wonder in worship? Have we lost our wonder in worship? Today we're going to weave a little bit of philosophy and history and most importantly some kind of theology and biblical studies all in 30 minutes or so. Um, And I want to start by reflecting on this. J M Barrie. Do you know this author? Do you know what he was famous for writing? Does anybody know J M Barrie? Peter, Peter Pan. He wrote Peter Pan. And most of us when we think of Peter Pan have Disney in mind, right? Cuz that's what I do. Or maybe the musical where some uh, lady was sort of flying on a on a line, right? Um, and in many ways when we think of Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, we we lose the sense of what um literary scholars will talk about was J.M. Berry's kind of hidden agenda, at least what we think was, because it was written in in the early 1900s. And if you think about that era in Western civilization, it was the time when the modernist uh, mindset was coming to the fore. And this modernist mindset was basically saying everything's explainable by scientific means. Everything can be if we just research it hard enough, study it hard enough, can figure it out. You know, everyone was saying that. And Peter Pan was coming out, uh, not just as a cute little kid story, but maybe as a herald to the culture that was going in this modernist direction, to send a different message. And saying, maybe, maybe with all this wonderful, if you're a scientist and a doctor, we love this stuff, because it helps explain the reality that God created, the world that God has made. And yet, in that focus and obsession, Peter Pan was there to say, have we lost our wonder? Have we lost our childlike look at the world? You know, That's the question that Peter Pan and J.M. Barry, I think, were, were posing uh, to culture. And I'm going to lay my cards out there and rephrase the question of, have we lost our wonder in worship? Did you know... That God intends for the worship service, worship, to be nothing short of a divine encounter, an encounter with Him? What would a church, what would Advent look like if we understood that in worship, God is really there? If we understood that in worship, God we're really there. I want to ask the question of why is it that you and I have lost our wonder? And maybe for some of you, you haven't, but I certainly feel like I'm always stretching and straining to believe that God is really there. Stretching and straining that when I come into a sanctuary, that as I gather with God's people, that when I come in, I'm not obsessed over the fight I had with my spouse or obsessed over the fact that my kids are being obnoxious, or obsessed over the really difficult week I had, but knowing that I am going to encounter a God who's going to reveal himself in special ways to his people, that he does in no other context and in no other way. You know, I've lost that. And uh, I think part of the issue is actually starts in academia and has trickled its way down, and it's some of what J.M. Barrie in Peter Pan was revealing Philosopher Charles Taylor, I don't know if you've any, any of you have heard of him, but he's written a very long book that I haven't read called A Secular Age. Seven to eight hundred pages. Most of us don't read it, but a lot of people I do read have. And they've distilled him for me. Authors like James K.A. Smith, he's a wonderful guy, and Tim Keller, a pastor. Uh, and they basically said that Taylor describes in, in these eight hundred pages how philosophy and worldviews of culture have, uh, when they've given us this modernist mindset and they've given us this this triumphant human spirit of being able to explain everything, it has what they call disenchanted us. We live in a disenchanted culture. If you start to read authors or people's diaries from the time before the modern era, before the 1800s, those people lived in a much more enchanted reality than you and I do. They thought about the interaction between the natural and the supernatural realms, which, by the way, if you're a Christian, you believe in. Uh, they thought about that with a lot more ease. They lived their life constantly feeling the tug and pull of physical reality and spiritual reality. And in fact, they didn't view those as so divisible. They kind of had a had an integrated view of the way that Uh, this supernatural reality interacted with with natural reality. And in many ways, the pre-modern mindset was the supernatural reality was the more concrete, the more real of the two. And yet somehow along the way, with this modernist mindset that we now uh, have been totally given and swim in, it's our cultural water. We know no different. We're predisposed to think like modernists without much enchantment about it. I'll tell you how this plays out with me. I regret this because I have a good friend, John O. Linebaugh, who's preached here before, who's done it differently. But when I started having kids, you know, you wrestle through the question of what are we going to do about eventually, you know, outing Santa Claus and outing the Tooth Fairy. When are you going to do that? And I chose, in kind of like my rationalistic, I don't want anything to come between them and God, and I know I want them to know what's real and what's not. I chose to out Santa Claus with my kids rather early. And it had several effects. Number one, I became the parent that every other parent hated because uh, I heard my kids evangelizing the unreality of Santa Claus to all their other preschoolers, which was obnoxious because we told them to keep it under wraps, right? We didn't want to have that. Um, and, you know, our, our, our kids quickly learned, and we sort of let it out of the bag, that we're the ones putting money under your pillow when you lose a tooth, right? Jono, when I was meeting with him uh, and hanging out with him, He was saying, I want actually to reserve that whole breakout moment for when they discuss. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too early. And here's the reason why. I want my kids to grow up with a sense of wonder about life. I want them... Because there's something formative that's really countercultural in our day and age. When everything's explainable, it's not really the tooth fairy. It's your mom and dad putting that. It's not really Santa Claus. It's your mom and dad eating the cookies. When everything's really explainable... We need to find these pockets to um, excite the wonder in our hearts about these kinds of things. Because you and I, again, are in a culture that's going to tell us to constantly push those things back. And my own parental confession betrays that we're in that kind of culture that's just predisposed to always sort of explain everything in that reality. And it's very disenchanted. But if we're Christians, we live in an enchanted world. Where the Spirit of God is living and active. This is what the scriptures say. Make no mistake about that. And I'll say, as someone who has lived and breathed in the world of leading and planning worship services in churches, this disenchantment has taken its toll on our worship across the board. You know, that, think about all the different uh, academic disciplines that are out there anthropology and sociology, they've analyzed our worship practices merely as meaning-producing ritual. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the language that anthropologists and sociologists use to describe what Christians and other people of other faiths do in their worship services, is they're engaging in rituals that produce meaning for their culture and their little uh, enclave. That's what they're about, right? So what they're doing is offering a very scientific explanation for what we do. And the reality is they're right. In our practices, in our liturgies, we're producing meaning that affects us and strengthens us uh, and upholds us. And thankfully for us as Christians, our rituals are things that guide us in the truths and realities of Scripture. So that's a good thing, right? But the fact that those are being explained that way kind of starts to leak into our worship a little bit in the way we think. Psychology, wonderful discipline. My wife has studied it deeply. We have a psychologist in the room. If you've studied psychology, you will hear people talk about explaining our religious experiences of encountering God as the projection of uneasy consciences. Our consciences, we're feeling a little guilty. And so I need to create some kind of religious experience and rituals that help me absolve myself. And so I will project a God who dies on the cross and absolves me of my sin. That's sort of the secularist mindset about what we're doing. Is we're all a little bit uneasy. And human- humanity is plagued with guilt. And so that's what the counselor's office is for, is to deal with all that stuff. But for the religious folks they've created this this construction that has allowed them to be assuaged of that guilt and placated and absolved, you know? That's the, that's the modernist kind of secular explanation of that. Science and biology have reinterpreted worship's miraculous signs and wonders as naturalistic phenomenon. You know, just like anything, we talk about miracles and there's a scientific explanation for why it's really not a miracle for why it's really, well, or even just something not quite miraculous, but something supernatural, where I sensed, I sensed the presence of God in this place. Oh, those were actually just uh, neurons interacting with your skin and nerves and goosebumps, you know? And probably explained by maybe what I could tell you, a key change on the organ. When the organ changed keys and lifted and the choir, you know, surged and soared, all of a sudden you felt goosebumps and you probably viewed that as God's presence, when really that was just a very explainable musicological and physiological reality, right? All I'm saying in in rehearsing all this is that we again live in a culture that's combating our enchantment. And all this is pressing in on us constantly, which is why people talk about this being a postmodern era. Why? Because modernism, for all its good, has been weighed and found wanting in a few areas, least of which is creating a really disenchanted people, who are hungering because it's in us from God for something greater, that God-shaped hole, that vacuum. We're hungering for it. And so the postmodern era are filled with people who are longing for transcendence, which is why, as our city in Birmingham changes, we may see more people come into our doors because when they come into our worship services, there's something transcendent about this place. And culture has sucked out all the supernatural reality And I know I hunger for it and I find something here, which is why you and I need to be part of a a welcoming church atmosphere so that people who are hungering for transcendence can find a place where they're not scared off, but are able to approach, are able to come and hear that word of absolution, that word of, of grace to them, right? The constant barrage of the explainability of everything, which is where we're at. Everything's explainable. If I need an answer to something, I can Google it, right? I've got answers to everything. And so I don't live in a place where I have mystery. I live in a place where I haven't Googled it yet, right? <laughs> right? And yet, we just we just prayed in our communion liturgy, if you're in the service, these words, which I want to remind us of, because they show us that we worship and our, our Bible teaches us an enchanted reality. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank Thee, for that Thou dost feed us in these holy, what? Mysteries. Mysteries. With the, what food? Spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of Thy Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. We worship with an enchanted reality, and you and I don't realize how much pressure there is to deny this and not believe this. And so, Christian, I would ask you, have you lost your wonder in worship? How do we recover this? How do we recover our wonder? I think it's actually by listening to what Christians have done across traditions. And I'm going to list three and then briefly talk about it and walk through a, a few passages of Scripture with you. This is a broad brush, and this is a way to characterize different denominational leanings with these three categories, which I'll call sacramental, Reformational, I haven't written on the chalkboard in forever, this is awesome, and charismatic, don't get freaked out. Three broad spheres. What I will say is that churches tend to lean in one of these phenomenological directions. Of course, denominationally, we have ties kind of to one of these, but what I'm saying is that we lean here in one of these ways. Sacramentalists, sacramental churches will be the ones who will say God is present in the sacraments. God is present in baptism and the Lord's Supper. The churches of the Reformation will will want to emphasize that God is present in preaching. Which, by the way, have you ever thought about that? That preaching is not just some verbal exercise, but is actually a place... We'll get to that. So... And the charismatic tradition, I have many friends in the charismatic tradition who will tell you that God is present when we sing. God is present in our song. And there. And I want to ask the question, number one, as I have come to, and I've I've been around Advent and understood Advent from afar long enough to know, that we're somewhere around here in where we leaned. I'm seeing some nods, right? We're kind of in definitely... We believe believe and emphasize preaching and we have a a real robust sacramentology, right? But let me just put some maybe denominations that you might be familiar with into these general categories, you know. Over here, sacramentalists, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Episcopal, some high Lutheran, high Methodist places like that. Some Presbyterian context. Reformation will be Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, those kinds of things, right? Which is why we find ourselves here. And then towards this spectrum, you'll find Baptist uh, and other things like that. Then out here, you'll find Holiness Pentecostal and uh, those other vineyard, those kinds of charismatic denominations. And you'll hear the way they talk about worship in each of these spheres, their emphasis on where they encounter and experience this kind of enchanted reality. You'll hear those emphases in the way that they describe what they love about worship, right? Because number one... What you and I ultimately love about worship is where our heart is gripped. And I will tell you, where your heart is gripped is where God is working. In that. That's, that's, that's a, a place that you can identify. And that's, that's where we find our hearts gripped, right? And so uh, if we start with the sacramental traditions, God is present in baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you open the Colossians 2, 19 through 12, you hear this. Listen to this now. Colossians 2, for in Christ, this is a verse about baptism. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So, I haven't talked about baptism yet, but what Paul has done is set up the presence of God and the fullness of God being in this discussion. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, in Christ, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. In Him, you were also circumcised. Christians, men and women, you were circumcised. not With a circumcision not performed by human hands. Who performed the circumcision? You were put off when you were circumcised by Christ. It's a really interesting phrase there to say that by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you are also raised. Just one of the many passages where we could point out that when baptism occurs, Christ is doing it. And that God chooses to be specially present there. So I agree with the people who say that in, God is especially present in the sacraments. And just skipping over to the Lord's Supper, the other sacraments, listen to this from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which you've probably heard many times. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This word participation is a word that many churches use, a Greek word that they use for their small groups. Koinonia. Have you guys ever heard that word before? We often use that word as a shorthand for a Christian fellowship where we're you know, interacting with each other's presence, Right? Is not the bread a koinonia, a small grouping, a fellowship with Jesus and God? Is not the cup a koinonia with God? At the table, it's more than just a ritual. God chooses to be present there. And I will tell you, I don't know what it... It was something powerful about where I was... The place I was at, but at the 730 service when I was there... I just felt God's presence when I knelt and received the the good gifts of the Lord that He had to give me in that moment in communion. I felt God's presence there. And I thanked God for the wonderment of that moment to remind me that He's real and He's with me, you know? Sacramental traditions will emphasize in worship that God is present in baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Reformational traditions will emphasize that God is present in preaching. Listen to this now. Ezekiel's call at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, when he's getting ready to be called to be a prophet and a preacher, he has this experience. And listen carefully to what happens in the experience in Ezekiel 2.2. And God said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And this begins God's call of Ezekiel. He says, And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and he set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And so... What we learn from moments like this is that when God is speaking to his people, he sends his spirit, his very presence into his people so that they can hear. You see, preaching is a hugely awesome, mystical Trinitarian reality because out of a broken person comes forth the preached word. And yet, this, just like the fact that I can't be speaking right now without breath and air in my lungs... So it is the reality that the word of God never goes forth without the spirit of God. That means that when preaching happens, it's a supernatural event. And that means I'm not comfortable calling preaching teaching. I'm not comfortable calling preaching instruction. And when we have encountered the preached word, there's got to be a reaction more than, hmm, that was stimulating. That was interesting. That really got me thinking. If you have encountered the living God, that's not what you say. When you encounter the living God, like Isaiah did, what does he say? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among... It's when God comes forth, he issues first something that freaks you out, and then he gives you a word of comfort on the other end, a fiery coal for Isaiah that says it's going to be okay. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. That experience is much more what the experience being under preaching should be like for us as enchanted Christians. And that's what the reformational tradition exists to remind the rest of Christianity of. That this is this is this place where one person is speaking, we are all hearing, is this event where God comes forth and is present and is doing stuff in you. It's real, you know? And finally... The charismatic tradition, God is present in singing, Colossians 3.16. Some of us who aren't from charismatic traditions are quick to look at what happens in those kinds of worship services as pure hype. And I will tell you, having uh, participated in them and had a lot of fresh friends in that, there is hype. There is hype there. But sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater when we don't hear words like this from Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your heart. The Word of Christ. Well, it's, it's not merely that when we sing, we sort of let the Scriptures go into each other's hearts. This is loaded terminology for Paul. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of God is Jesus, according to John 1. Let Jesus dwell in you richly as you sing to one another. And I can attest, and I hope you can too, that when the people of God sing, I feel God's presence. When the people of God sing together, I hear the body of Christ, which is more than a metaphor, singing. I hear Jesus singing. You know, and we could go to other places like the Psalms that integrate. And you read the Old Testament, read all these uh, accounts of sacrifices being made at these really historic moments. And when these sacrifices are made, God's presence is thick and everywhere. There are very supernatural moments when these sacrifices are made. And in the Psalms, I can't tell you how many links there are linguistically between what happens in sacrifice and what happens in singing. And go back and read some of those sacrificial encounters and you will find times where music and sacrifice are happening simultaneously and God's presence, theophanies, are coming thick on the people of God. So don't tell me, oh, reformational, sacramental you know, person that I am, Don't tell me that God also doesn't choose to grant His presence in singing as well. And what I mean to say is that God's presence, if we listen to the voices of these traditions who have in their own way heard the Scriptures and emphasized those things, we get the best of everything. God's presence is everywhere, especially when God's people gather. And so to kind of end before some questions... One question that often kind of comes up, if God, so this is kind of systematic theology, if God is omnipresent, you know, if he's present everywhere, how is it that we can say God is present in worship? I mean, okay, he's present there, but he's just as present when I walk out the door and go somewhere else. What I will tell you is when you read the scriptures, yes, God is present everywhere, but God chooses to make his presence manifested, shown, apprehendable, understandable, close, more specifically in the gathered worship of the people of God. I am convinced of this. I am convinced that God reserves certain aspects of His presence ordinarily. And that word ordinarily is really important. That was an important word for the English reformers. It's an important word for us. Ordinarily, the way God wants to manifest Himself to you is when the people of God gather and when they sing. And when they're preached to, and when they experience the sacraments together, that God chooses in these special ways. When you read the scriptures, God is reserving these as ways that he's going to show up and do something special in you and in your community. And what I want to say is, think about this from a missional perspective. Think about this from the outsider looking in, which Paul, by the way, was really concerned with in Corinthians. When it came to gathered worship, Paul was interested in the outsider and what, what was happening when they were looking in. Imagine, and I don't, it, the ritual almost doesn't matter as much as it is how people engage the ritual and understand their encounter with God. But imagine if an outsider, someone who isn't familiar with the Advent, walked in off the street and saw a bunch of people who grasped and understood that they were encountering none other than the special presence of the living God amidst His people. Imagine what kind of lightning bolts would go off. Imagine the scene of a people of God so enraptured by the presence of God in the midst of God. I am all for ritual. I believe in it. But the reality is, if our ritual is so formalized to the point where we lose the wonder. We've lost it. And the reality is some people have reacted to what I just said by saying, dump the ritual. The ritual's not the problem. The people are, right? We are. It's time to confess. And it's time to look at this milieu, this uh, cultural water that we're swimming in, and realize everything's pressing in on us to be disenchanted about all this. And maybe it's one of the most missional things we can do. One of the things we can do that draws people to Jesus. Simply for the watching world to watch the people of God encounter him on a Sunday morning and watch those spiritual and supernatural waves reverberate through Birmingham. Imagine what God encounters at Advent would do when the news gets out that something Powerful goes on there because I see a bunch of ordinary Birminghamian human beings caught up in something pretty extraordinary that I will tell you God chooses to make already there. You know, it's already there. And it's ours for the taking. God's ready to constantly and is giving these things to us. His very presence, you know. Uh, And of course, there's so many things in what we do, in any tradition, actually, that are distractions to and just human, broken, fallen realities to why you and I don't get these kinds of encounters on a regular basis. But what would it be like to be a church that just stubbornly prayed for that? In fact, as your canon for worship and liturgy, that has been and will continue to be my prayer every week on Sunday morning when I first wake up. God, Help us to encounter You. Show up in a way where we can't sidestep that it's actually You. Make it real to us, Lord. Change us again. Make the liturgy come alive. Speak through it. Preach to us. Come alive, O Holy Spirit, as we sing. Show yourself, Jesus, at the table. Those are my prayers for us. And I invite you to join me in praying for that weekly. Because that encounter, when it happens... Is awesome. Questions? Yes. Um, I, I appreciate so much what you've been saying. Um, could you say just a word about where the actual word
1: of God fits in there? You, you talk about preaching.
0: Yep. You get that. But the preaching, of course, has a context. Yeah. I've been a you know, victim of a sermon that had no context mm-hmm. to the word. So, I hear nervous that, laughter. Yeah. Yes, interestingly enough, where does the word of God fit? Let me get a Where's the Where did I put it? Well, if I had my chalk, I'd circle the whole thing. Yeah. Uh and we have to the word the phrase word of God, you know, is was really I'd encourage you to read Martin Luther on it. Uh, which thankfully Advent loves here, which is why I'm here because we talk a lot about Martin Luther. But his understanding of the Word of God and the way it goes forth, chiefly in the Scriptures, and Scriptures as the governing, guiding reality, because, I mean, phenomenologically, that means experientially, we're going to encounter the Word of God coming at us in all kinds of ways. We'll understand it better as we're dialoguing in and, in and interacting with Scripture. But the reality is the Word of God, the Word that kills and makes alive. If we had time, I'd go over Second Corinthians 3. Because the other thing I didn't say, that we didn't have time for, was when God is present in worship, He has a very specific agenda. And it's one agenda. It's to deliver the Word of God to you, through all those means. And that Word of God comes forth with two prongs. comes forth in a word that kills, which Paul calls the letter in 2 Corinthians 3, and the word that makes alive. So, if you want to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus and tell them about what you encounter in worship... I encounter God killing me and resurrecting me on a weekly basis. It's kind of strange, right? <laughs> but that's not thats not really at all anywhere far from the truth and the reality. The Word of God, the agenda is to kill you and to make you alive. It's to bubble up the old Adam, to identify him, to bubble up the old Eve and identify her, all the ways that she's trying to earn her sel- salvation and re- self-righteousness and call a spade a spade and say, Die. Die now. You cannot live up to it. That's the word of the law, right? And then after that, once uh, old Adam and Eve are kind of put in their place to come in and say, and yet, new Adam, there is one who lived the perfect life for you that you could never live. There is one who died the death for your sins. And he gives you free of charge all his righteousness. And he pays free of charge all your debt. His name is Jesus Christ. Be absolved of your sins you are forgiven forever, fully and finally in Jesus. And even now, I mean now, don't you kind of feel the the enchantment of that word coming to you as something very sweet and comforting that we all need, right? That's what that does. That's the word of God as it comes to us. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, Zach, you uh, focus on singing when you're talking about the charismatic. Yep. And of course, when a lot of people Right. Tongues, prophesying, healing, all this kind of stuff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you choose to focus on singing? Because for many people, it's probably not something that they associate right. with the particularly charismatic. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't want to go too much into tongues right now, um, but I, that's a good question. The when you talk to charismatics. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and there are plenty of people here who are as charismatic in every sense of that yep. word as you'll find any place. But I, I'm, I'm still curious. Yeah, I love it, Charles. Um, when you talk, at least when I talk to charismatics, all those signs and wonders, what they call sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, those kinds of th- healing that happen, are happening in the context of musical worship most often. And so uh, singing is kind of the... The, the the context, it's the framework in which those things happen. Uh, if you study the charismatic movement, which is, uh, the modern charismatic movement really is, uh, well, interestingly enough, several generations birthed out of Anglicanism. Anglican to Methodist holiness tradition to late 1800s, early 1900s, some things that happened in California, some things that happened elsewhere, converging passing through several generations and then creating iterations, third wave, second wave, charismatics, John Wimber, if that name in the vineyard charismatic tradition, and then the charismatic renewal among uh, the mainline churches, which the Episcopal Church is part of, you know. Um, And so I I guess I just described that to say they've gone through a lot of evolution. Um, There's been a lot of evolution in that. But the common thing you hear is... God does something special when we're all kind of singing together and just mellowing out and living in that musical moment together. So you'll hear music talked a lot about. Yes. What else? Well, um, I hope that, I mean, I don't know that, for instance, yes, I think the goal is to live in all three. I don't know that for a place like Advent, that means shifting anything other than our, under, under, than our experience of what those things are and our mindset about that, you know? Um, again, I'd, if God is choosing to be present in a special way, why wouldn't I want it? Why wouldn't I want to encounter God where he longs and uh, drives to be found, you know. I think there are certain, like our church is going to be one that emphasizes these things more, and I think that's, I think that's wonderful, actually. Um, but I would hate for us to just view as I appreciate people who feel this way, because I believe it's biblical. When I look at the scriptures, even just briefly, God wants to and uh, chooses to reveal himself here, I get an opportunity to encounter God. I want that. You know, it's just as simple as it, it transcends any sort of, uh, other issues. I just, when God says that that's where he wants to reveal himself, I want to, I want that. You know, so, um, even though this is, these are our emphases here, it's worth more, than, I think more than appreciating, but saying in our music in what we already do, how can I, how can I enjoy the encounter and experience the encounter? Yes. Yeah. Here, um really to me, does a good job conjuring up that work. Sure does. Um is there where does that play into like the our physical senses Yeah. attacked? I, I think that it's a wonderful thing. The good side of those things is that great symbols help excite our senses toward the toward wonder. You know? Um, which is for all the sort of mockery that people in our camps do of modern worship sort of rock show haze and light stuff, the good side of what they're trying to do is not all dissimilar to what we're doing. Their lights are stained glass. You know? Their fog, our incense. I know I'm being provocative. I know I'm being provocative. You know, their their slide backdrops, uh, the beauty of our held prayer books, you know? And what I mean by that is we're all, these are, as they are understood as things that evoke the senses and help us experience the holy mysteries, they're wonderful. When they become idols, they're horrible, you know? Which is why you don't see many accoutrements being codified by God. He allows those things to be culturally unearthed and expressed, which is why you saw reformer Thomas Cranmer critiquing Roman the Roman church of the day with a lot of that. And he actually got rid of a lot of those smells, But because they not because they were bad, but because they were actually tearing away from the people of God being able to encounter him, which is why he stripped down the prayer book, which is why he put it in English, so that we could actually talk to God with my language, you know? And so when we think about all those things, which I find wonderful and equally evoking, these symbols that just tell me about the heavenly procession that's going on, that I'm stepping in that heavenly worship right now. You know, when I see the glory and the beauty and the high ceilings and my head is lifted, all these things as symbols that evoke and as symbols that help me to experience the wonder, amen, A+, praise God, right? Just like I know good, solid, Pastoral worship leaders in this modern side who actually understand what those symbols are supposed to be doing, you know, and actually tastefully, pastorally, appropriately utilize them well. Yes? Um, you said in the beginning meaning producing. Yeah. And I would, I would come back at you on that and say maybe it's more meaning discovering. I, well, I agree. And yes. meaning experiencing because it's there. Right. Well, that's the difference right. between the secular mindset, right? Mm-hmm. The secular mindset is that there's no God. Mm-hmm. You guys have produced this meaning through your rituals, right? You right? The right. word of God comes to us and tells us who God is and what He's done, and through that we and therefore we craft and create liturgies that mm-hmm. give us this meaning. So yeah. What I hear that, it, that is exciting, but also is that um, I keep thinking of the hymn that we sing often here, "I You, Sing to Jesus," and it ends with. Lost in wonder, love, and pride. Yeah, I love and that line. What you're yes. About, that yes. Line. That I, one of the things I love about this place is I think we do all three, but I'm hearing you helping us desire to go deeper in all three. As your canon for liturgy and worship, amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, that's, yes. Mm-hmm. I want us to understand what we're already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's going to start to affect us more deeply and do something because i believe in I believe in the Word of God, I believe the Word of God never goes out without being you know without doing something killing and making alive, and I believe that when the Word of God does that, it starts to affect churches and cities you know and it's very ordinary and extraordinary work because it's coming through broken vessels, you know imperfect choirs and clergy, and imperfect laity. <laughs> Rustling pews and slamming, you know, prayer benches and all that stuff, you know, like it's coming through this, and yet it is none other than the encounter with God, right? So I want us to—it's more than hype. I really want us to have a deep sense of the presence of God in what we do, and that's going to be my prayer. It's kind of why I started with this, but it's to excite and build up our imaginations about what worship is and does again, because we're—and you'll start to see it if you think about the fact that. We're disenchanted. You'll start to see all the ways that we get that way. So thank you all. I've got to go. See you next week, hopefully.